Welcome to the Evolving Advisor Podcast, dedicated to equipping independent financial advisors with the tips, insights, and knowledge to help you achieve success in business and life. Host Jeff Concepcion shares 30-plus years of experience as an advisor, entrepreneur, and CEO. Join Jeff and the industry's top thought leaders as they help you evolve from where you are today to where you want to be tomorrow. Now here's your host, Jeff Concepcion. Hi, this is Jeff Concepcion, and welcome to the Evolving Advisor Podcast. Our guest today is Deborah Danielson, CFP, MSFS, President and Owner of Danielson Financial Group, based in Las Vegas. Deb is a native of Las Vegas and has built a tremendous career and reputation in our industry as a result of her collaboration, not only with clients, but as a thought leader with colleagues as well. As an investment professional since 1981, she's a certified financial planner and has her master's of science in financial services as well. LPL is her broker dealer where she maintains her securities registration. Throughout the years, Deborah has employed a deep based financial planning comprehensive practice to help solve her clients' goals in addition to managing their wealth. She's had tremendous recognition. Through Barron, she's been noted six times as a top 1,000 financial advisor. She's been noted eight times as a top 100 woman advisor and multiple other exposures and recognitions and participation as well in Fox Business, CNBC Squawk Box, and others. She's also a serial author and has written a number of books, and we're going to ask about one of those books upcoming. So I have to tell you how Deb and I met. We both were serving on an advisor council to our broker-dealer, and we chatted a couple times, but I really didn't get to know her well. So Stratus opened up an office in Las Vegas, and I had a mutual friend sort of reintroduce us. And the funny thing is when I went and sat down in her office, I don't think I stopped laughing for 90 minutes, and it felt like two old friends having conversations about the funniest, craziest stuff. And that was when I fell in love. I, I had admired her from a distance, but from a personality standpoint, fell in love in that conversation because she was just so warm and open and fun and transparent. And I would consider that we became friends in that meeting. So I'm super excited to have you visiting with us today, Deb. Oh, thank you so much. Jeff, I'm wondering, are you talking about me? <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, I, and I am. I've just stated my love publicly, my love and affection. So... Yeah, I really enjoyed the visit and excited that you're going to share some of your secrets today about how you built such a, a successful firm. Thank you. Thank you. So going back to 1981, how did financial services or wealth management find you or how did you find it? I'd love to hear that backstory. Well, it was kind of crazy. I was a housewife. I had two small kids and I subscribed to a newsletter by Howard Ruff, who was kind of a hard money guy back in the day. And he had a program he was selling that sounded amazing. And it talked about investment planning, financial planning, taxation, retirement, estate planning. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. I'd love to take this course. But then I started thinking, that's what I'd really like to do. I wonder if there's a real program that you could do. And so I called them. And I thank them to this day because they were very gracious. They said, I don't know if there is a real program, but we'll check it out. We'll get back to you. And they got back to me and said, you could do a CFP program. That's what it would be. And I said, great, where are they? And they said, you know, Adelphi in New York, Golden Gate in San Francisco, BYU in Utah. And I was like, but anything in Las Vegas? And they were like, no. So I thought, well, I'll call the College for Financial Planning in Denver and find out more. And they mentioned to me that they were doing a pilot program in Las Vegas that year, and they would be starting it in the fall. And I was so excited because... 
it was something I could do with two little kids and being at home. And I jumped in and I started the CFP program actually first. So when you took that CFP program, you were not in the industry yet? Is that where you're sort of building your foundational language about financial planning and about the business? It was. So I started the program. I did the first part and passed the exam. I did the second part, which was on insurance. And I went down and I got my insurance license and put it on ice. I was finishing up the investment portion. And then I thought I would get my securities license and put it on ice. I was going to finish the program. I was so naive, I didn't realize somebody had to sponsor you for the test and you just didn't get one and put it on ice. But fortunate for me, I was at the JC Fair that summer and the Financial Planning Association, then it was called the International Association for Financial Planning, had a booth there. The only year they ever had a booth there. And I found them. And they said, we have a local organization. We meet at Caro's at seven o'clock in the morning, you know, in September. I marked my calendar. It was the most exciting meeting I think I had ever planned on attending. And I happened to sit down next to a gentleman who said, so are you in the industry? And I explained what I was doing. And he was kind of stunned. He said, you should come and see me. And he was the founder of Private Ledger, which was the combined firm of Linsco and Private Ledger. And I went to see him. He interviewed me and he said, I'll sponsor you for the exam. Because when he asked me, who's sponsoring you for the exam? I said, I am. He goes, no, no, no. Who's sponsoring you for the exam? I said, I am. Again, just so naive. So I took my exam in September, found out I passed it in October, and I started in October of 81. So when you say started in October of 81, not a lot of people start off independent, right? They're typically in training programs. And so I'm, I'm almost at a loss a little bit. Explain what starting off means. So you, you got licensed and what did it, it was look like from there? Oh, it was hard. I was in an office with nine other people that were retired, independently wealthy multimillionaires who really didn't have a reason. They just worked with their friends. They didn't have a reason to grow. I could have worked at McDonald's for the first few years and made quite a bit more money than I did there. So I got securities license, continued to work on my CFP program because I wanted to complete that. And I thought, I just need a way to get out and prospect because I didn't know anybody that had any money. So I decided that I would design a program through the Chamber of Commerce, and I got the list of all the groups that were here in town, and I sent out a letter saying, would you like a fun, entertaining speaker to talk about financial planning? And best of all, she's free. And I sent it out to every group you can imagine. And I was out two or three days or nights a week speaking to different groups about financial planning and comprehensive financial planning. And then later, the university had a need. They had decided it'd be quite unique to have a women's class on financial planning. And I taught financial planning for today's woman, a basic and an intermediate and an advanced for probably a dozen years. And to this day, I still have some of those women that are clients of mine. That's fantastic. So it's not surprising at all that what catalyzed your career was kind of this marketing blitz of public speaking and outreach education at the university. And it's very interesting, you know, as I look at some of the most successful practices, gigantic practices of friends that I have around the country, a lot of them did it through various types of education, marketing, seminars, and classes. It's a wildly effective way to grow a business. 
Well, you've really spent time with a prospect there because I was actually teaching them all the components of financial planning. And it was a six-week course. If they didn't like me after spending two hours a week with me for six weeks, they were never going to like me. And I gave them a questionnaire to follow up on what they liked and what they didn't like and offered them a free consultation. And most all of them took me up on that. And that's the way I built my business. And I taught spring, summer, and fall in all three classes. So I, was, I did that for years and years. I knew I liked you in 15 minutes, so they'd have to be a slow study not to have had a crush as quickly <laughs> as I did. So, 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 so a couple years in, what exactly did it look like? I mean, how long did it take before you felt like, okay, I'm onto something, I'm starting to get some really good clients, and when did it click where you felt like, this is viable and I think I can build a, a successful business? Ooh, I guess it depends on how you define success. It was... Um... It was challenging for a number of years. It wasn't like I was making a lot of money. I was working really hard, but I was, you know, paying the price and doing everything. And I decided, crazy me, in 1985 that I wanted to do my own office because the office I was in, they were nice, nice people, but they were just not supportive of any growth. They didn't want to do any seminars, which were really popular at that time. They didn't want to do anything. They were like, nope, I don't need to do that. So in the same building I was in, I moved, I had my own office with LPL. I said, I want my own branch. They said, you have to have a principal's license. And I said, I actually have one because they needed a principal in that office when he was gone all the time. And so I was the principal in that office. And I moved upstairs in there and just decided that I was going to do something bigger. Hired my first employee, which was really intimidating, and just kept working it till Finally, it just started, it started flowing and, and then I kept growing and growing and growing and uh, today there are like 16 of us in the office and things are very good. <laughs> now, that's really exciting and so that's interesting. So, it sounds like 19, which is you know, pretty quick. So, four years in, you got to the point where you began to make sort of that little baby shift, the first shift from being an advisor to being a business owner. You brought on your first employee and then I assume sequentially over time, the practice expanded and you brought in additional forms of resources and talent. And that's one of my favorite topics, by the way, the evolution from an advisor to a CEO. And I don't know if you can pinpoint the time, but when you felt like you had enough staff and enough involvement and had delegated enough things that you were an advisor, but sort of becoming a CEO, any light bulbs go off in, in, in yeah. that sort of description or... You know, probably about 1988, I decided I didn't want to rent anymore, and I was pretty experienced with owning real estate. I bought my own office building, and the glitch with us is that the building they showed me was a combination mortgage with the building next door. I was like, I don't want two buildings, I just want one. They were like, you have to buy them both. So I went, okay, another rental. So I had my office in the one building and next door was a, a rental building. And I think that was probably when things started becoming more successful, that I didn't feel like I was in the, you know, panic mode all the time of just keep working, working, working. Yeah, so it's interesting to see what that CEO role takes on and what it means in different businesses and different practices. Some folks can do it with two or three, and then others like yourself who've built a substantial enough business end up really running sizable enterprises with all these employees. And so if you look at maybe two or three of the areas where you've most heavily invested in staff, can you talk about the functions or roles that these departments or teams play inside of your organization? Yes. I, to me, the most important, well, I shouldn't say the most important, but a critically important one for me is my director of operations. She makes sure that the business of the business runs. She doesn't work 
in our industry, but she makes sure that I own my own building here too, that the building is taken care of, the maintenance is taken care of, she knows who's on vacation, she takes care of payroll, she takes care of 401k, she makes sure we have toilet paper and coffee. She makes my life wonderful that I don't have to deal with employee issues on a full-time basis and pay the bills, etc. So that's really important to me to give me freedom to just work on what I want to work with. Then I have three licensed employees that I call relationship managers that are very, very knowledgeable as well and have the skill set to be able to meet with a client, answer the questions, can take those calls when people need trades because they are registered. And then again, admin, really, really important. The people who do the follow-up letters and make sure to nag my clients for those to-dos of things they're going to get me and uh, keep all the client notes, send up the follow-up letters. My director first impressions, our receptionist, she's amazing. She greets them and she's engaging and makes sure they have coffee and water and they're comfortable while they're waiting. I mean, not any one employee is less important than the other. They just all have really different roles and together it's the perfect, you know, cogs in the wheel to make everything work. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. And I think when you surround yourself with talent, the way I like to explain it is it allows you to, over a period of a couple of decades, continue to fire yourself from certain responsibilities, hand those over to other people that are executing well, so that you get down to fewer and fewer and more and more focused tasks that really only you can do in such a meaningful way for the business. And then I think that's when you're onto something. And it sounds like you've accomplished that a long time ago, which has probably led to your continued growth and success. Well, I believe in coaching programs too. I did 13 years at Strategic Coach and that was one of the things they always taught is, you know, how to fire yourself. <laughs> and I think that's a really important skill. I mean, I, it sounds a bit uh, hoity-toity that, you know, I think I'm the one who does it best of anybody, but by the same token, I can't be there for everybody all the time. So I need to instill the skills in my team and make sure that they can do it. And my biggest joy would be that they do it better than I do it. No, that makes a lot of sense. Very, very exciting. So as the practice evolved, I'd love to hear about the client acquisitions. So it sounds like the public speaking and it sounds like education and the classes were an important early component. They were. Once you developed that business, were there other types of marketing or referrals or other things that you did that helped you maybe get more laser focused on the type of people that you were being referred to? Yeah, I did client appreciation events and client events where they could bring a friend that was someone like them. I kind of married my passion of wine with my business, and I find I attract a lot of people that are really interested in wine. And we've done wine and chocolate, either pairings, we've done chocolate making. I had hired a a certified master chocolatier who's award-winning all over the world. And with my love for wine and explaining the wines and her with the chocolate, and she made some of the chocolates with my wines in them, so integrally paired. And then I've done wine dinners, again, for education, not just so much for drinking, but really explaining different things to them. It's been a fun journey, and I love to to share that. I actually uh, went to school for three years in Napa, pursuing toward my master sommelier. But I finished my fundamentals, my intermediate, and my advanced with merit. And then I had to take a pause because 08 was coming on, and I just didn't think I could dedicate that much time being gone. 
That's pretty amazing. So I guess I have two questions. I was a certified mouseketeer, and I don't know if that qualifies <laughs> for anything. A big fan of Mickey Mouse. But my second question, would I have to open up an account with you or what would it take for me to get invited to one of these wine and chocolate parties? Oh, well, we're having one next May. <laughs> keep, keep me in mind. Keep me in oh, mind. Yeah, they are really, really fun and really great. Well, then I really felt bad that I couldn't uh, pursue that. So I decided that I was going to start winemaking. There's a facility in Las Vegas called Grape Expectations that has the winemaking equipment and barrels. And you meet with them and choose your varietal. And I chose to be the winemaker. And my team helps me make the wine. We've made eight vintages together over probably the last 10 years. And that's been really, really a lot of fun. And I've, I've given those wines to my very best clients, a few special wholesalers and a few special friends. So I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the client appreciation events because I think that you know a lot of people do them and some people do them effectively uh, and others not so much. So can you talk about maybe the number of people you invite? Is there some type of a suggestion that they're going to be invited in to, to visit? And if you, how do you sort of convert making new friends to the possibility of more directed conversations about their needs and your skills? Well, you know, I've done two different types, but the one that I liked, I called it the ultimate client dinner. And I would invite my best clients and they would invite a friend. It's a completely 100% non-sales event. It's a very nice dinner, wine pairings. And I tell them about the wine pairings that we're doing with the meal. They have a choice in the meal, but it's, you know, it's somewhat of a limited menu just because of time, but there's three or four choices in every category. A very, very nice meal, a nice restaurant, a private room. And one of the things that we did was we play about three different games. One of them, I had posters made of famous people, and I've got to meet, and I'm sure you have too, Jeff, over the years, famous people that come to speak at LPL, and you've had your picture taken with them. I had them blown up to a big poster size, which they don't see, and then I usually find the wife or the husband. Generally, I talk to the wife of one of my best clients because the husband can never find pictures and say, do you have a baby picture of him? And they will give it to me. and We'll have that blown up into the poster size. And then we'll play a little game so that we'll show the, the picture and they have to raise their hand or shout out who that famous person is. But after a while, they realize I'm with a lot of famous people. They could just be famous people, but I decided to use my twist on it too. And then the last picture, they're all going, who is it? It's some baby or some toddler. And many times the guest doesn't even realize it's them or else they do and go, oh my gosh, how would you have gotten that? And uh, you know, I tell them their wife played along and then I give them that piece. We also do that with music. I went into the music of different decades, starting the, the number one song of the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and we'll play a piece of the music, and it's kind of like name that tune, whoever can name that tune, and I give away just tchotchke little prizes, you know, like one little game, like at the salad time, and while they're clearing plates, we do another little game with the famous pictures. One of the other things we do at the dinner is we put a note card under each person's plate, and I ask them to fill out where they would like to travel anywhere in the world and why. And then I collect those and randomly pull one out and ask the group who do not know each other. I read, this person would like to go to Spain and here's why. And they get to guess who that person is. And if they can't guess after several wrong answers, I'll ask the person, whose is this? And I'll ask them to explain why Spain, why they want to go there, what's about it. 
And it's a way that gets people talking and sharing, and then they'll go, oh, I had a friend who did that, or we went here, or oh, let me give you some ideas about that. So it builds a lot of camaraderie. And just between the different music and photos and talking, it's a fun evening. They've had a great meal. They have some nice wine. And then I would usually end the dinner by reading a poem called The Dash. And it really makes people settle back and think about what's really important in their life, of living their life between the dash, which is the date of birth and the date of death. And um, I follow up afterwards thanking them for a great evening. And I send them all the book, The Dash, including the prospects, and ask them, you know, if they'd like to come in for a second opinion to evaluate what they have, because it's very important to make sure that they're, you know, on track for their retirement. And I have picked up clients that way. That sounds like a great process. So. So there is an ask, but it happens at the end, and it's after probably a couple hours of just a great meal, and, and which I think well, is fantastic. It's, it's not even an ask. I just read the poem, The Dash, and, and tell them, you know, who we are and what we've done. And they've, they've seen different pictures and things, and they've got to know me over the, those few hours. Then I mail out the book with the, if you would love, like to have a complimentary, you know, second opinion, just like you would with a doctor, we'd be happy to, to provide that at no cost to you because of your referral from you know, so-and-so who brought you to our, our, our event. I think it's great because 98% of that is built on sharing and enjoyment and relationship building. And then there's just literally that last 1% that says, this is who we are and this is what we do. And I'm yep. sure that for the folks that don't convert immediately, that they somehow sort of get pulled into a way where you can communicate or share some type of a newsletter, you know, get updates from... Of course. They're yeah. going to go on my prospect list and we are going to drip on them with our Facebook, Twitter, emails, Lifestyle Magazine, you know, market updates, all of, the, all of the regular marketing things as well. No, that's awesome. So thank you for sharing that process. And it sounds like it's worked extraordinarily well. And I think that, you know, I, I really believe behind every great business or every great wealth management practice, there's some great marketing that takes place. And I think you shared with us kind of the evolution of the early stages of that, which was a lot of public speaking and your classes and education. And then even these these little get-togethers that you do, client appreciation events, which sounds like they've been really successful. So I'd love to switch gears and talk about your writing a little bit because it's something that you've obviously done several times. It's, I think you started off with the Expert's Guide to Financial Planning. Was that mm-hmm. your first? That was one that I co-authored okay. uh, with a gentleman who wanted to write the book and he wanted to do the travel. I just wanted to have the, the glory of saying I had done it. <laughs> and that was really fun. And then... Um, Big Vision, Small Business. Did that come after that? Oh, yes, it did. I forgot about that one. Yes. It was talking about running a business. And the first one, I actually did a chapter on more of decor of your office, which sounds like an odd thing, but I think that's an important thing on the psychological feelings of color and et cetera on office planning, because I wanted my clients to feel very comfortable And many times they're coming like we're like a doctor's office, but they're financially undressing. And sometimes that's just as uncomfortable as physically undressing. And I want them to feel as comfortable as they possibly can. You know, it's interesting that you say that without getting sidebarred. I spent the last day and a half with a family member at the hospital and I was noticing the artwork and it was extraordinarily soothing, the colors and the themes and everything else, which just sort of reinforces your fact that the setting and the experience and all those things kind of play into making people feel comfortable and sort of presenting in the proper fashion. So I think it's a really neat nuance. And I didn't realize that was what your chapter was on. 
That's well, pretty cool. Big, big companies, it's not an accident that you feel a certain way when you're there. And there's certain colors that evoke different emotions. And depending on what your business is, you want to evoke different emotions. No, that makes sense. So speaking of emotions, this next title was the most you know, emotionally evoking title. Uh, mm. Maybe you can talk a little bit about this. Why me seeking answers on your grief? Can you talk a little bit about that book that was, I believe, your most recent? It was. Um, my son, who was 24 years old at the time, was killed in a car accident. And uh, it was one of the most challenging things I've ever had to go through. And I realized there was a limited number of resources, things were different, and it was frustrating. So years later, I decided that I wanted to write a book, which I dedicated to him, but a self-help book for other parents or whomever that have lost a child or someone to give to someone who's lost a child to help them get through a step-by-step processes and answers to questions. I kept saying, you know, how, how do you handle this at the holidays? How do you handle this, this? And there weren't any suggestions or answers really. And so I wrote this book to help others and it was a cathartic effort. I started it years before and I just couldn't do it, but the timing was right. I got it done. And then I decided to have all the proceeds from that book go to charity. So it's something you can get on Amazon or et cetera. And I've had great feedback on it. In fact, it became a number one bestseller the day after it came out. And then it went international bestseller in Australia day two. But the ironic thing is that I wanted to have it finished by the end of the year. That was my goal. And uh, it was in at about October-ish. And I thought we were going to finish. And my husband came down with pancreatic cancer. And he had no symptoms whatsoever. And from the day we found out that he had cancer to the day he died was 12 days. So that really threw a wrench in my end of the year. And I said, I just can't finish it. So the next year, I said, okay, we're going to get it done. And between the publishers and the editors and my schedule, to, be, to really want to launch it properly, it took till October 19th, where he said he could make the launch. And that was the day that my son died. And I thought, oh, I can't do that. That's just going to be an awful day. And I thank him today because he said, no, it's not going to be an awful day. That's the day your book's going to go bestseller and you're going to change a bad day into a good day. And we did it and it happened. And uh, I was really excited about that. And the proceeds go to a local charity here in Las Vegas to help people with grief counseling. It sounds like a very unselfish gift, right? Because it's kind of hard to walk through the challenges of what you experienced and the emotions. And then the gift is if you help people to understand how you reconcile over time and how you accept and seem to find some grace in something that's extraordinarily difficult, it seems like a very unselfish gift to give. And and to your point, maybe cathartic in the process of making that gift. It was, and it was something that, you know, it was good. But they, you just get questions many, many times. Simplest things, I mean, one that comes up all the time is you meet somebody in a social situation and they'll say, oh, do you have children? The next question is, how many? And you wonder, what, what's the answer to that? If you, if you say, uh, well, now there's two, or, uh, well, I had a son, but he was killed in a car accident, and then people go, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry, and that's just not the way you want to meet someone. But then if you don't say something, you think, well, am I being disingenuous that, you know, I'm not honoring him that he lived too? And, you know, there's all those little things. So there's complicated. It's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. There's lots of little things you come up with that you just never realize or things that you wonder if you're going crazy. I mean, 
one that came up to me was, I'm sure if you've bought a car and after you bought that car, you see that car everywhere on the road. I'm sure you've seen that phenomenon. 100%, yeah. Well, after my son passed away, in the next two or three weeks, I thought I saw him in different places. So like I would be walking down the street and I saw a young man walking in front of me in San Francisco. Well, obviously I knew he wasn't in San Francisco. I knew he wasn't walking anywhere, but he looked so much like him from the behind. I wanted to run up and grab the kid and say, hey, can I turn around and just see who you are? Because I felt like I was seeing him places because I wanted to. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't there, but I, w- I was wishing it to happen, I guess. I can understand. I've had other people say they did the same thing. And it's not that you're crazy. It's just that um, it's just like seeing that car after you buy one, you're becoming hyper aware. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, I think it was extremely unselfish to write the book and to help other people with with a process that you went through, obviously not easily uh, and only with time. Uh, And I, you know, I had an experience. I happened to lose a, a godson who I was extraordinarily fond of. Same thing in a car, 23 years old, uh, and it's it, at times like that, I think it's very, very hard to digest how or why things like that happen. Mm-hmm. So providing a guideline or a process for someone just to kind of think through some of these issues with a book like that. Thank you for writing it. I think it's really neat. Oh, well, it it was helpful for me and I think it'll be helpful for others. And it's something of a legacy that could live on. And, uh, my son's death gave me perspective into something that uh, I now know much more about and I'm, and I'm a much more compassionate advisor as well. Yeah. So, so speaking of being helpful and, and, you know, passion for what you do, switching back, I'd like to ask you just one last question. So if you look at the profession and the desire to kind of help other advisors achieve the same level of success that you've had, is there a guiding principle or two that you could maybe share that would help someone who's surviving. They're getting by, they're running a nice business, but they really want to elevate. They want to be and do more than they're doing today. Is there a guiding principle or two that have served you well to have as much success as you've had? Well, I I think you have to be very thoughtful and set goals. I think you have to have a plan and work your plan. I think you have to have some real grit and determination and not give up because there will be times that it's difficult personally. There'll be times that it's difficult in the markets. You'll be challenged more ways than you could ever imagine. But if you want the, if you want to live like others, others that you dream about today, you've got to do what others won't do today to get there. And uh, I just met a young couple actually Monday night and I thought they were fantastic. And I just reached out this afternoon and said, if there's any way I can help you, especially the wife, to succeed in this business. And they're in a, a different broker dealer completely. But I just, I think if you stick together and you help people to see things and to win, it comes back. You know, there's no lack and limitation in this world. And I think the more you can help people and help correct or help their course or help their thinking, it's a good thing. Yeah. So that kind of brings back this whole concept. To, I don't even think I would have recognized what the word was, you know, 10 years ago, but now I hear it and think about it often. It's just karma. You know, Mm -hmm. the more good things you do, the more people that you help, you might not always be helping yourself and helping them, but you kind of create this circle of goodwill back in your direction. And I think you've done that with the book and I hope you've done that with the podcast today, sharing some great practices. So thank you so much for, for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's always a pleasure. And we're going to end, as we end every podcast, with the most exciting part, the lovely and talented Deborah Danielson singing one of my favorite artists who had just an incredibly gorgeous voice. 
Karen Carpenter. So we'll just take a moment now. Just feel free to tee up your music and I'm excited to listen in. Such a feeling's coming over me. There is wonder in most everything I see. Not a cloud in the sky, got the sun in my eyes, and I won't be surprised if it's a dream. Everything I want the world to be is now coming true especially for me and the reason is clear it's because you are here you're the nearest thing to heaven that i see i'm on the top of the world looking down on creation and the only explanation i can find is the love that I have found since the hell's been around. Their love puts me at the top of the world. Something in the wind has learned my name. And it's telling me that things are not the same. In the leaves on the trees and the touch of the breeze, there's a pleasing sense of happiness for me. There is only one wish on my mind. When this day is through, I hope that I will find that tomorrow will be just the same for you and me. All I need will be mine if you are here. I'm on the top of the world looking down on creation and the only explanation I can find is the love that i found since I has been around. Their love put me at the top of the world. I'm on the top of the world looking down on creation and the only explanation I can find is the love that I found since the girls been around. Their love put me at the top of the world. How was that? Fantastic. Can you guys? Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> that is a talented group. Did did you hear our little change of a couple of a couple words? I did, and do you know who else heard it? No. The second half of the song, I had Dan Arnold on my cell phone. No way! Yep, yep. He was screaming and dancing, and no, I didn't. I, I, I contemplated dialing to see if I could get he or Andy. That was fantastic. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Never in a million years would I have thought that would happen. You guys, oh listen, you sounded really good. No BS. I mean, I was dancing and I, I'm not ashamed to say I was swaying and dancing in the background. We rehearsed. We really, it was on the calendar every day this week. We rehearsed. It sounded great. It sounded like it. <laughs> awesome. What did Dan Arnold say? No, no, no. I, I was teasing. I said I pulled up his numbers trying oh, to call here, Andy. Oh, you're teasing me. Oh. Yeah. 
No, but but he'll he'll need to hear that. I actually thought halfway through. I wonder if I could get either Dan or Andy on. They'd get a kick out of this. So yeah, that is so funny. That was awesome. Awesome. Oh, you guys sounded great. All right. Very Yay. cool. Yay. Thank you so much, buddy. You guys, you, the group was awesome. And thank you for sharing all the ideas. It was terrific. So oh, Jeff, Kevin, thank you so much. I really you. appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Wine and chocolate. I'm going to bribe my way into one of those parties. Okay. <laughs> thank you, buddy. I hope to see you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks, Bye. guys. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Evolving Advisor. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and share it with your colleagues. And if you would like to talk about succession planning or practice acquisitions, please drop us a line. We would love to help you in any way we can.